Today's show is brought to you by SoFi. Finding your dream home is difficult. Financing it with SoFi is easy. Get a mortgage for as little as 10% down and learn more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply. See SoFi.com slash legal. Loans originated by SoFi Lending Corp. and are not available in all states. NMLS 1121636. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as a brilliant jerk, although not the kind that works at Uber. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Kim Malone-Scott, the author of a new book about leadership called Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. Kim previously worked at both Google and Apple and has advised CEOs at companies like Qualtrics, Dropbox, and Twitter. She and I spoke in front of a live audience a couple weeks ago at the Optimizely office in San Francisco. Let's take a listen. All right, Kim. Let's start talking about your background. I know you don't want to, you want to talk about the book mostly, but of course. your background is really, really interesting. I've been lucky. I had a lot of cool so jobs. So why don't you talk about where you've worked? And obviously, Google was probably one of the biggest places. Google was one of the biggest. Before Google, there were three failed startups, so mm-hmm. Google worked out a lot better. Okay. I also started a diamond-cutting factory in Moscow before Google and mm-hmm. uh, led a pediatric clinic in Kosovo. Those so, are failed startups uh, or no? Well, no. Th- those, that. That's in addition to the three right. failed startups. Okay, so yeah, talk a little bit about that background, because failed startups are really an interesting thing um, to, to, to get you to a place that is more successful. Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of the reason why I wrote the book was that I screwed up so often in the failed startups as mm-hmm. a manager. I sort of, when I first became a manager, a friend of mine was joking with me. She said, you started this company because you hate the man, mm-hmm. and now you are the man, you hate the man, you are the man. It's even more complicated because <laughs> you're a woman, you know. Uh-huh. And, and I think a lot of managers have that feeling when they first become a boss of somebody. Like, what does that mean? Right. Uh, and, and so those experiences in the startups uh, and then seeing, seeing it done better at other places, and right. not always better, but right. often So better. what were the failed startups? What were they? So the, the first failed startup was, was uh, well, the, the, probably the biggest one in my mind was Juice, mm-hmm. the one I started. Right. And before that, there was Capital Thinking, which mm-hmm. was a commercial mortgage ASP. And before that, there was Delta 3, which was a voiceover, or super early voiceover IP company. And these you founded? No, I joined the first two, and then I, I co-founded Juice. And what, what, was the, what did they have in common in failure? What was the issues? Bad management. I mean, mm-hmm. it was really pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the first two cases, it was other people's bad management. And then I imagined from those two experiences that if I were the boss, if mm-hmm. I were the CEO, yeah. it, human nature would change, which, which of course, it didn't. Uh, and and so the the those those were where a lot of the early painful. Could you talk came about from. some of that bad? What was yeah. bad? So so here's a good example of of badness. So mm-hmm. so at at Juice, I had hired this guy. We'll call him Bob, mm-hmm. and I liked Bob a lot. Bob was funny. He was smart. He was charming. He would do stuff like we were at one of those management offsites where we're playing one of those stupid get to know you games that right. everybody hates and nobody dares to admit that they hate. Oh, and I Bob, dare to admit yeah. I declined to do them. They did a falling game thing. <laughs> yeah. and I, and I didn't the trust catch fall. Someone. It's like such yeah. bullshit. 
Anyway, uh, but you it's hate to yeah, you, you hate to admit that the trust fall is bullshit. You yeah. know, what does that make you? So anyway, Bob was brave enough to do this. He was like, this is taking a long time. I've got a great idea. We're going to go around the table and we're going to tell each other what candy our parents use when potty training us. Weird, but fast, right? right. Hershey Kisses, right here. We all remembered. And then for the next 10 months, yeah, if, if ever I'm grumpy, you know what to give me. Right. Uh, and for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment, right? So I liked Bob. It was yeah. one problem with Bob. Okay. He was doing terrible work. Absolutely atrocious. I learned later the problem with Bob was that he was smoking pot in the bathroom six times a day. But hence I didn't know. Candy. Yeah, that hence, hence the, the candy. candy. <laughs> exactly. Right. Explained all. The, but I didn't know any of this at the time, and I was puzzled because Bob had this amazing resume. Like, why was he doing such bad work? And so, and I liked him. And so, instead of giving him feedback when he screwed up, when he would hand something in that was incoherent, I would say, Bob, you're so awesome. You're so smart. This is a really great start. But why don't you know, why don't you try a little harder, come back, right. you know, I'm sure it could be a little better. And this goes on for 10 months, mm -hmm. and eventually the inevitable happens, and I realize if I don't fire Bob, I'm going to lose half my team, and we right. can't afford that. And, and so when I have the conversation with Bob and explain to him how things stand, he pushes his chair back mm -hmm. from the table, looks at me right in the eye, mm -hmm. and he says, why didn't you tell me? So why didn't you tell him? And yeah, it's a good question. But mm -hmm. then he asked another question. I didn't have a good answer at the moment. I mean, I, was, I thought I didn't tell him because I wanted to be nice to him and not criticize him. And then now I'm firing him. Not mm -hmm. so nice after all, right? Mm -hmm. But then he asked me another question. Mm -hmm. And the other question is, why didn't anybody tell me? Mm -hmm. And I, I realized that was even the worst mistake. Right. He says, I, think, I thought you all cared about me. You right. didn't tell me. And why didn't I tell him? I didn't tell him for a couple of reasons, neither mm -hmm. of them that good. Uh, one is that I was so worried about hurting his feelings that I, that I didn't tell him. And then the other, the other problem, of course, was that I was, everybody liked Bob. And I was afraid if I told Bob what a bad job he was doing, he would get upset and the whole team would think I was a bitch, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that to happen either. Right. And so I, and, and the, the, the meaning of radical candor is care personally, challenge directly. And when you do both at the same time, that's good. That's radical candor. When you, when you fail to challenge because you care so much, that's what I call ruinous empathy. So that mm -hmm. was one mistake I was making with Bob. Mm -hmm. But then there's this other, even worse mistake that you can make where you neither care nor challenge mm -hmm. because you're worried about yourself, usually. And right. that I call manipulative insincerity. So I would say those, those were my two screw-ups as a manager with, with Bob. And, and the, the worst part about this was that it was too late to save Bob. I, mm -hmm. could, I realized I had screwed up, and because I had screwed up, I'm now I'm firing Bob because of it. And that's the worst thing about managing people is that you make your biggest mistakes on the backs of these people who work for you. Right. And, and Except all, that Bob was not capable of doing the job. Well, maybe he would have stopped smoking pot if I had explained to him the impact. Mm -hmm. it was. I mean, he right. could have fixed it. He, was, right. he had Perhaps. the capability. Maybe. Right. Maybe not. Right. But at yeah. least he could. I mean, but you weren't honest. You weren't I wasn't. Honest in the I was not. For I was, all kinds of I was of not candid. Reasons. Not candid. Um, so, and then the other one? What other... What other, um, what, other, what, what other thing went wrong? What other thing went wrong? 
with so Bob. not feedback, not no, with other people. Bob is yeah. fired now. So uh, I think an, another, yeah, Bob's. <laughs> Fuck Bob. Bob's okay, Goodbye. by the way. Okay. Uh, just like I, we all, it all, you know, in Silicon Valley, you fall up, you don't right. fall down. Oh, I know right? that one. Yeah. <laughs> so Eric all, Schmidt is doing great. Yeah, we're yeah, all okay. okay. We're all okay. Oh, sorry, it's Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I was never in a position to fire Eric Schmidt. Right. Uh, so, not that I would have fired Eric Schmidt. Uh, anyway. You don't have to say so. I right like, now. I like, I like, right, whatever. I like old I Eric. Care. Anyway, um, so another mistake that people make all the time, especially here in Silicon Valley, is they look around at their team and they think that everybody has to be hyper ambitious all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's this, then, especially when I was at Google, I had this, this sort of intense, you know, you've got to be on this super fast track. And then when I, when I got to Apple, there was an executive there who, who said to me, you know, there's two different kinds of people who, are, who do really well on the team. And the key thing to building a high-performing team is to balance the two. You've got, you've got to balance your superstars and your rock stars. Like, what the heck is the difference between a superstar and a rock star? Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of scratching my head. And she says that your superstars are the people who are responsible for growth and change on your team. They want new challenges, new stuff. You've got to make sure they're getting promotions fast, all that kind of stuff. Your rock stars are the people, don't think about Ozzy Osbourne or something like that. Mm-hmm. Think about the Rock of Gibraltar. They're solid mm-hmm. as a rock. And these are the people who are great at their job, and they'll keep doing that job for years mm-hmm. if you don't screw it up for them. And, and I realized that I had been sort of systematically undervaluing the, the people who are in rock star mode for my whole career. And that that was not only bad management, it was sort of out of alignment with, with my personal humanity. So example, there's this guy, we'll call him Derek, who all was... Right, I like these names. I know, you've got to love all these all names. Right. Um, Phil. So Derek... Derek led... I noticed they're all men who are screwing up, but go ahead. <laughs> if you're going to fictionalize, you may as well make it all men who screw up and all women who do wonderful work, right? So anyway, Derek... And Derek actually, in this case, didn't screw up. It was me, the woman, who was screwing up, to be fair. So this is a, a you know equal opportunity screw-up situation. So Derek, Derek was customer service guy. Loved doing the customer service work. People sent him... Baked goods. Forget about MPS. When your customers are sending you baked goods, that's when you know you're doing a good job. And so, so Derek uh, loves the work, and, and the company's going well, and eventually I, we need to grow. And so I say to Derek, do you want to lead the team? Do you want to lead this customer support team? And he said, no, I don't, because what I really want to do in life is to be on Broadway. This was a startup in New York. And, and so what I really want to do is leave work at 5 o'clock and go be in these off-Broadway performances. Mm-hmm. And so I hired this other guy to lead customer support who really didn't care at all about customer support. What he really cared about, he wanted to be the CEO. He was, on, he was the superstar, you know, mm-hmm. super, super fast growth trajectory. And Derek comes, he, and this guy's, uh, uh, the guy I hired, his opinion was that customer support work was so boring, you had to hire B players or C players to mm-hmm. do it. 
And this obviously was upsetting to Derek, who came charging in my office talking about Ayn Rand and, mm -hmm. and you know, there, there are people who are these, who are on the fast growth trajectory mm -hmm. and those are the architects, but you also need electricians in your building and if you want the lights to turn on, you don't need a C electrician, you need an A plus. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't need a C architect, you need an A plus electrician. Mm -hmm. And this kind of made sense to me, but Derek wasn't signing up to lead the team. So... I just let the other guy do it the way he wanted. Derek quit, and pretty soon everything goes to hell, and mm -hmm. you know the the baked goods stop, and and the whole team failed. And I realized I had just undervalued the the job that Derek was doing. He was not a B player by any stretch. He was an A plus. He loved his job. So stuff like that stuff like happened, that happened. All, the, all the time. Now then you went to Google. Then I went to work, Google. Where you worked in search, all kinds of places. Never search. Always, Never search. it was AdSense, YouTube, DoubleClick, online sales search operations. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about what that was like, because that was an unusual, they did a lot of unusual management style things. And, and it, it can be radical candor there. It can also be passive aggressive, in yeah. my experience. Yeah, I would, I would say that Google, again, there's, we didn't talk about one quadrant mm -hmm. in the radical candor framework. Okay. All of life's problems, of course, can be distilled to a two-by-two. Two. So this is all. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so in the bottom right-hand box where you are challenging directly, but you're not showing that you care personally, that's obnoxious aggression. Yeah. Also known well, as the asshole quadrant, the right? asshole quadrant, right? But yeah. we're not going to call it that, and we're not going to call it that for a very important reason. Why? The reason is that I don't want you to use the framework. to. It's tempting to start writing names in boxes at this mm -hmm. point, right? Who's obnoxiously aggressive? Who's manipulatively insincere? Who's mm -hmm. ruinously empathetic? Don't do that. We all spend time in all of these in all of these quadrants. Use the framework to judge not yourself or other people, but the way a conversation is going and to get it going in a better right. direction. And so the bad quadrant, this, so this actual quadrant can three, be very successful. There's three bad quadrants. Right. And I would say, unfortunately, the, the what, what we're not going to call, Kara, mm -hmm. the asshole, what we're going right. to call the obnoxiously right. aggressive quadrant. Right. Obnoxiously, obnoxiously aggressive behavior. is such a nicer way of saying asshole. It's like not. <laughs> Describing behavior, not You're not person. an asshole. You're obnoxiously aggressive. That's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> You're being in this being, moment. Being, oh, right. Yeah. Usually yeah. it's perpetual, yeah. Yeah. but that's all right. Um, sometimes, sometimes. And actually, I, recently, uh, Ariana Huffington has called it brilliant jerks at Uber. Yes. We're going to get to Uber, by the way. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always gonna, happy to gonna talk about Uber. You're going to diagnose that. The, the other night, I was a little, maybe I had a couple, of, a couple of drinks, and mm -hmm. I was feeling like I should only use mm -hmm. Lyft, but mm -hmm. I'm in the habit of saying Uber, so I said, I'm going to take a Luber home. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, don't make that mistake. All right, I won't. Okay. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back with more from Radical Candor author Kim Malone-Scott soon after a word from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Audible, which has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can listen to all of that wherever you are thanks to Audible's free apps for iOS, Android, and Amazon devices. It's not a streaming or rental service. With Audible, you own your own books. When you become an Audible member, you get a free book every month, plus a 30% discount on all regularly priced audiobooks. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash D-E-C-O-D-E, -E, that's audible.com slash decode, and get started today. This podcast is brought to you by SoFi, a living room with a fireplace, the perfect kitchen, a big yard. Finding a house that checks all the boxes is hard. Financing shouldn't be. And it isn't with SoFi. 
Mortgages start at 10% down with no borrower-paid private mortgage insurance. Plus, SoFi underwrites at the pre-approval level, so when you find your dream home in your dream neighborhood, you can act fast and make it yours. Visit SoFi.com to learn more. Terms and conditions apply. Visit SoFi.com legal for more information. Loans originated by SoFi Lending Corp. are not available in all states. NMLS 1121636. So Google, talk about that because that was an unusually managed company. Like Google was Google was awesome. And tell me what why what was that? So I, I'll never forget. Shortly after shortly after I joined, watching Matt Cutts and Larry have this Larry Page have this argument about something. I don't even remember what, but. I really liked Matt. I had gotten to know, know him. And he, he starts yelling at Larry. And, and I was just looking at, at Matt and listening to what he was saying. And I was starting to worry. Oh, my gosh. Matt's going to get fired. You know? And then I looked at Larry. And he's just got this big grin. His whole face is lit up. And, the, and it, was not, it was just such a productive way to have arguments that it was sort of inspiring. Yelling. Yelling. Not always yelling. Right. In this case, challenging. they were challenging and being willing to challenge authority and the authority sort of welcoming it. There was another time where, where there was, I was in a meeting about the AdWords front end, and since AdWords is how Google makes all know, its 90, 90, not all, 90, 90, yeah. 99% of its money, a big percent. Yeah, those balloons are <laughs> really killing it. <laughs> So anyway, AdWords yeah. is important to Google. We can agree on that. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was a big change, and, and the team wanted to do one thing, and Sergey wanted to do another thing. And Sergey said, okay, I understand why you want to do that thing, but why don't you put a few engineers on this idea, on my idea? And the team was having none of it. Mm-hmm. And Sergey at some point kind of bangs his fist on the table, and he says... If this were an ordinary company, you'd all be doing it my way. I just want a couple of you to to, to try it my way. And he didn't even get that, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, but he was he was frustrated. He was genuinely frustrated. But he you could also see he was smiling. He was proud of himself for creating an organization that would stand up to him. And that was that was inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the concept that you're trying to push through the book is that this is important is to allow this kind of. To, to encourage, yeah. What, a story I heard last night, I was having dinner with Susan Wojcicki and Lorraine Toole and mm-hmm. uh, Carrie Farrell was there. They were talking about, we were talking about women's, you know, we were talking about Uber and different things. And apparently at one point when they didn't have enough women engineers, he just stopped hiring. They just wouldn't let them hire until yeah. they That's... could. And then moved a lot of people into the diversity group. In order, you know, if we don't have enough diversity, then we need more people in the diversity group, which right. is interesting. Right. Not that they still have don't have issues; they have major issues. Um, but they really tried hard. Tried, yeah. It's a difficult. Um, Alan Eustace really tried hard. Yeah, um, and he tried hard in in significant ways, like like the, the the hiring process, taking a look at at how they promoted, and making sure that that. The data was out there, so women knew when it was so, time to. So, what are the things you learned at Google and, and took away into the book in this idea of? Because you, you radically can can move into just obnoxious aggression. Obnoxious, not not just it's it's not so necessarily mean, but you know, shut up. 
they yeah. stop talking kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where everybody has an opinion and nobody has a decision-making process. Yeah, it was a, Google was interesting. It was a, uh, a fast-moving, consensus-based organization, which I would have said was impossible until mm-hmm. I was working there. But I think... Uh, so fast-moving, consensus-based. It was a very cohesive group of people. Yeah. Even but, people who didn't like each other were cohesive. Yeah, it was. It was and, and I think that radical canner was part of what held it together. So, so what do I mean by, by that? A simple example is short again shortly after I joined joined Google I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about the AdSense business and you know you walk in and there's Sergey those of you all of you pretty much all of you have worked at Google right in his toe shoes on, on the treadmill in the corner of the <laughs> in the corner of the conference room and and Eric staring into his computer like his brain is attached. And, and you think, how am I going to get these people? What, what is my ro- Why am I even here? Mm-hmm. And like any normal person, I felt a little nervous in the situation. And luckily, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added, Eric's head jerks up out of his computer. And to the extent you can screech to a halt on an elliptical trainer, mm-hmm. Sergey does. And Eric says, what do you need to keep this going? Do you need more engineers? What resources? And I'm thinking, you know, this meeting went okay. In fact, I'm kind of feeling like a genius. And, and as I walk out, my boss at the time was Cheryl Sandberg. And I'm expecting a high five or a, at least a pat on the back from Cheryl. Mm-hmm. And instead, she says, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And mm-hmm. I think, oh, boy, I screwed something up. And I'm sure I'm about to hear what mm-hmm. it was. And... So she started out saying, focusing on the good stuff, mm-hmm. and not in a feedback sandwich kind of way, but, mm-hmm. but seeming what? to mean it. A feedback uh, sandwich? The shit sandwich, you know, okay. you all say right. the good thing and then the bad. But okay. this wasn't bad. It was better than that, trust okay. me. But anyway, all I really wanted to know was what I had screwed up. And so eventually she says to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Now I breathe a huge sigh of relief. If that's all I've done wrong, it's no big deal. And I kind of make this brush-off gesture with my hand. And she said, I know this great speech coach and Google would pay for it. Do you want an introduction? And I make this brush off gesture. I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all these new AdSense publishers we've just added? And she stops. She looks at me and she says, I can see when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, you sound stupid. Cardinal sin at Google. Now she has my full attention, right? And some people might have said that it was mean for her to tell me that Mm -hmm. I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could possibly have done for me at that Mm -hmm. moment in my career. And kind for a couple of reasons. One, because she knew me well enough and she was paying enough attention to know I was blowing her off, to know she had to sort of move out on that that challenge directly dimension of radical candor. But also kind because I had been giving presentations my whole career. And if she hadn't said it to me just that way, I wouldn't have gone to see the speech coach. And I wouldn't have realized that she wasn't exaggerating. I really did say um, every third word. It was like I had been going through my entire career with my fly down, and nobody had had the courtesy to tell me, Mm -hmm. hey, your fly, I mean, I could zip it up if you tell me that it's down. And that really made me think, why had nobody ever told me that I had this problem? And what made it easy for Cheryl to tell me? And and I think that at at Google in general, with, with Cheryl especially, Everybody who worked for her knew that she really had their back, that she really cared personally about mm-hmm. them. But 
but she also didn't let her concern for our short-term feelings get in the way of saying what she needed to say for our long-term success. So mm-hmm. it was a simple story. So how do you? How does? A, how do people learn that? What are the 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 tools? Because first of all, talk about what the problems are to getting that. It's, yeah. Why don't people behave like yeah. that? that? One was, is being, that was being too real. nice. Yeah, being too nice. I mean, I think. The, the problem on the challenge directly, which is, which is also, I think of as the sort of willing to piss people off dimension of radical candor. You really do have to be willing. You're, you're good at this. Yeah, Maybe we should ask you about why. But I mean, I, here's what I, I honestly, think. Honestly, I don't care give a fuck what people think of me, but go ahead. That's good, but that's an important yeah. part of radical candor. I'll talk yeah, about that in a minute. Well. Uh, so I think, I think for a lot of us it starts because we have a parent. How many of you had a parent who said to you, as you were learning to speak, like you're 18 months old or something like that, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all, right? And now all of a sudden no. you, your parents didn't say, well, yeah. good on your parents. Yeah. They did you a favor. Yeah. I have eight-year-old twins, and they really they come out with some zingers. And yeah. It's the house of radical candor at my yeah. house. <laughs> anyway... Because I don't tell them that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so we, we're sort of taught from the time we learn to speak that it's dangerous to say what you really think. So, mm-hmm. uh, and now all of a sudden you become a manager and it's your job to say it. And that's, it's hard. It's hard to undo training that's been beaten into your head since you were 18 months old. And then on the, on the care personally dimension, I think a couple of things get in the way. I think the big one happens when you're about 18, 19 years old. You're just at that moment in your life when your ego is extremely fragile, but your persona is beginning to solidify. And right at that moment, you're told, be professional. Mm-hmm. And I think for an awful lot of people, that, gets, that, that means leave your emotions, leave your real self, leave your humanity, leave the very best part of you at home, and come to work like some kind of, I don't know, drone or something. And, and that is not a good way to move up on the care personally axis. So I mean, it doesn't start like, I don't give a shit about people, so I'm going to be a great boss. That's right. not how it starts. Right. right? Uh, so so one is don't say things. Two yeah. is act for, t- just essentially edit yourself. Yeah, edit, well, edit, edit yourself. Edit, yeah, edit yourself in two dimensions. Mm-hmm. Edit, edit your, your humanity and edit, what, and edit your brain, right? And, Edit your... And it, it happens definitely with women more than men, too, correct? Or yeah, no? well, I think that here's, here's how I see it. I think that a, a man managing a woman is more likely to be ruinously empathetic with that woman than with the other men not on his team. Not giving him enough feedback. Yeah, not Actually, giving him enough... I was just enough... talking to Megan about this. Yeah. She should ask him about that because yeah. w- w- men are often nervous to give feedback to women or people of color sometimes. Yeah, exa- it, 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 it plays out with... It, it's hard to be radically candid with someone who looks just like you. It's even harder to be radically candid with someone who looks different than you. And so I think that men, men managing women, it's, and I, my twins are, one's a boy, one's a girl, and I see this from the time they're four, three, mm-hmm. there's so much pressure on my son to pull his punches with, with my daughter and other little girls. Uh, in fact, Tim, who's back there, has a great story. I hope you don't mind if I tell you this story. So, so Tim, Tim told me a story about being, it's a, it's a, it's a great story because it's both literal and figurative at the same time. So Tim's on the company softball team, and this woman on the team starts yelling at him for throwing the ball more gently to her than he is throwing the ball to the guys on the team, and it's causing the team to lose. And, and 
Tim, is, Tim, who doesn't have a misogynist bone in his body, he's a wonderful man, was chagrined to realize that he had done this. And, and I don't think that the tendency to pull punches when giving feedback to, to women on, on your team, if you're a man, is, stems from some sort of character flaw. It's just, it's, again, this training that's been beaten into you since, since you were a little boy. So forgive yourself, but give the women equal feedback. I think it's harder for a woman to be radically candid. Mm -hmm. If you're a woman and you're being radically candid, you're much more likely than a man is to be accused of obnoxious aggression. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is kind of the abrasive problem, the mm -hmm. competence likability problem. But it's even more painful than that, because if you're a man who's unjustly accused of obnoxious aggression, you're called an asshole. But if you're a woman, you're called a bitch. And I, I don't have data on this, but mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure it hurts more to be called a bitch than an asshole. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, it's hard. Mm -hmm. And it's tempting as a woman, especially as a young woman, to back off your challenge, to move in the wrong direction. And I think it's really important to have extra strength, to hold your ground, to continue so how do you, how challenging. how do you do that? So, and then men managing men tends to be easier. But I don't. Management is never easy. Right. It's just. So it's, how do you how do you then change these behaviors? What's the what's the? Uh, yeah, I think that I think that if you if you are a woman and your boss is a man, I think it's really important that that you demand criticism. If you're a man, just be aware of the fact that that you might be pulling your and don't do it. Like she can take it. I promise. There's a lot of lot of thoughts on. on fear of tears that men often have. My first thing I would say is that maybe this says more about me mm -hmm. than anything else, but my experience is that men cry just as often as women in my office. So, mm -hmm. um, so men cry too is, is the point. And so, so don't, you know, don't over-index on that. And if you really can't, if you're, the, the worst thing you can do, I think, is a man who's afraid of tears, which is, I mean, women are afraid of tears, too. It's, it's no fun to have somebody crying in front of you. Nobody that I know likes that. Um, I, I think a few things are important. One is don't say you can't cry. I once had a boss who told me, you just can't cry in front of me. And this man this would just... before you cried? He was pre... Crying yeah. you? Yeah, and then I started crying. I mean, all, all like, like he would come walking down the hall and I would yeah. tear up, you know. Wow. It, it, like guaranteed that I was going to cry when he said this to me. He, it's like Tolstoy's brother once played this mean joke on him and he said, go stand in the corner and don't leave until you stop thinking of a white bear. And then he couldn't, st you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so don't do that to people. Don't say you can't have a particular emotion. Mm -hmm. If you yourself, no matter what gender you are, can't handle tears... Like, own that emotion. Don't tell the other person that they can't cry. Mm -hmm. Say, let's talk about this later. I, you know, uh, it upsets me to see you cry. Mm -hmm. Like, just own your own emotions. I think as a woman uh, being unjustly accused of obnoxious aggression, part of it is just, I think Tim took this phrase out of the book because it was disgusting, but I'm going to say it here. All right. Just put your thick skin suit on. You just have to kind of tough it out as part oh. of it. Um, you, you don't back off. You do want to show that you care personally, but you don't want to become the angel in the office, right? right. Virginia Woolf, yeah. Virginia Woolf uh, said that the, the goal of a female writer is to kill the angel in the house. And she was talking about this Victorian poem that basically said that Women are wonderful because they have no wants and needs and desires of their own. They just exist to serve the men around them, which is mm -hmm. obviously... We want to kill that angel, that, mm -hmm. that notion. Mm -hmm. And I think, unfortunately, what has happened often, and it's because of this competence, likability mm -hmm. bias, 
the angel has left, left the house and entered the office. And, and very often, I think women put undue pressure on themselves because it's being put on them mm-hmm. by others to, like, bake cupcakes, to, to go too high up on the, on the care personally access, do all the office housework. So, so don't, don't do that. So our current political environment isn't like that because obnoxious <laughs> aggression seems to be working. I, you know, it's not radically candid, that's for sure. So there, explain I think what it is. There's, there's... Just fucking crazy? Yeah, fucking yeah. crazy might yeah. be the best. <laughs> it might have gone off bad the grid. Bad shit crazy. Bad shit crazy. It might have gone right off the grid. Right. I, there's an awful lot... You can have another grid. Yeah. <laughs> Here's one thing that I see, not necessarily among politicians, mm-hmm. but just in general in, mm-hmm. in political discourse... I think the phrase, the phrase, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all, has a political corollary, which is politics divide. Mm-hmm. And so we all are afraid to talk politics with one another if we disagree. Wow, and, it doesn't seem like that anymore. Yeah, well, I don't, it's, 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 still, it's still like imagine, that in my family. Well, I mean, but I'm thinking of social media where everyone will literally say anything at this point. Yeah, but they're not, what we have, what we have failed to do is to show that we care personally yeah. about the people who we're disagreeing with. Mm-hmm. And, and we've like utterly failed to do that. Mm-hmm. I failed, to, I, I made this great promise that I was going to have a, political discussion with someone who who I do love but mm-hmm. who I disagree with vehemently and I just I had a even though I just wrote the book Radical Candor I had a really hard time doing it it's difficult mm-hmm. it's difficult to to challenge people do you directly imagine conversation has changed because because I think social media has gotten weaponized and toxic in so many yes. ways and it, you know it's led by Trump with his crazy tweets but they're yeah. they're very indicative people do that all the time it's sort of and it gives permission for people to do that I think that when you are one of the one of the rules of radical candor is to have as many of these conversations in person as possible. Yeah, uh, and and that's for a bunch of different reasons. One is that when you can see how another person is reacting, you do care more. And when you forget that there's actually a human being on the other end of the screen, mm-hmm. you're you're not you're not. It's it's difficult to yeah. show that it's difficult a to care personally and 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 hard to show that you care personally. Yeah, it's interesting. I t- some people when they go crazy with me on Twitter, mm-hmm. I find their phone number and I call them. And and they're probably horrified. Yeah. Oh horrifi- my god. Yeah, yeah. I always start like, hey. You know, calling me, the C word, may feel good, but it's really not nice. And, (laughs) well, I know you you must have a mother or a sister. You clearly don't have a girlfriend from (laughs) the way I look at it. But why do you do that? And most people back off. Not everybody, but most yeah. people are like, oh, I'm so sorry, but it's this twitchy kind of culture we've gotten mm-hmm. into where, and, and then we get permission from our public figures to do it. Yeah. That it become, and you can be very clever and cutting very yeah. quickly, which yeah. is interesting. When it's easier to look smart when you're criticizing, when mm-hmm. you're, when you're attacking, mm-hmm. than when you're, sh- it's hard to look smart when you're showing that you care personally. We're going to take another quick break now. We'll be back in a minute with Radical Candor author Kim Malone-Scott. Hey, Rico Deco listeners, this is Ezra Klein, and I would love for you to check out my podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. It is a weekly conversation where we go deep with newsmakers and power players in politics and media. You can begin with the episode featuring Dennis McDonough, President Obama's White House Chief of Staff. It's his first major interview after serving in the administration or Stuart Butterfield, head of Slack, or Kara Swisher, who I think you know. Check it out and leave us a review or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is also sponsored by Oxford Road. Ever wonder how these ads on podcasts work? 
A startup pays a host like me to read a script about their disruptive product or service. We know you're choosing to listen, and that means you will probably, at the very least, give any product or service we mention serious consideration. But what if you were one of those startups who want to advertise on a podcast? Where do you start? That's where Oxford Road comes in. It's the leading advertising agency in consumer tech. Companies like Dollar Shave Club, MeUndies, Blue Apron, and more started with Oxford Road. Oxford Road engineers ads to perform. They buy media based on over $100 million in performance data, and their world-class analytics and attribution methods give you confidence in every line of performance, just like digital. Go to OxfordRoad.com scale, set up a free analysis, and find out what it would cost you to test ads on a podcast, and maybe the next script I'll be reading will be yours. Go to OxfordRoad.com scale right now. So let's. We're going to talk about this, but I want to. I do want to talk about Uber because that is like a management disaster. It is a management. Like. I agree. So what? What would you do? To, where to? Where to start? Where sexism, does, sexual harassment, yeah. the crazy behavior. Where should we begin? Yeah. So, I think that one one of the things that I that I most admired about Google and management at Google was that Shona Brown, who led business operations yeah, and who designed system. a lot of the processes that she loved the system. Yeah. She, and she's damn good at developing right. one. Mm-hmm. So, so one of her beliefs that I think is really true is that unchecked unilateral <laughs> authority is bad. It results in bad decisions that are m- much more easily hijacked by bias than, mm-hmm. than, a, than a good process. Right. And I, I put it, as she puts it very sort of eloquently, I put it like this. I think that power and control work really well in a baboon troop or a totalitarian regime. Like, but that's not what we're shooting for Which here, sounds right? like Uber, but go ahead. Yeah, well, I'm not, I, you said it, not me. Right. And so I think, the, I think the problem is absolute power corrupts absolutely, and a little power corrupts in petty, nasty ways. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one of the things that would help a lot uh, in a culture like that is if the usual sources of power that an individual manager has get stripped away so that the manager has to rely instead of power and control on forming a relationship with the people who work for them. So so my model for the way that good management works is that the manager is at the center, and if the manager's off balance, everything else goes bad. Right. Uh, and then the next concentric circle out from that is the relationship that the manager has with direct reports. You can't Relationships don't scale, but you can have a relationship with each of your direct reports. And if you have a good relationship with each of your direct reports, and only if, then are you able to fulfill your core responsibilities as a manager to create a culture of feedback, to build a cohesive team. Because they will do that. Yeah, and you'll do it with them. I mean, it'll, it's a collaboration. Those arrows goes, go both ways. And, and to achieve results, of course. And, and to achieve results collaboratively, because telling people what to do doesn't work. And so if a manager cannot, if, an, if a manager doesn't have unilateral decision-making over who gets promoted, who can, get, who can transfer, um, what, what performance ratings people have, then a lot of this stuff that, that got described just couldn't have happened. Now, that's not to say that, that those processes are going are gonna to fix human nature. They're mm-hmm. not. But they'll make the, the worst abuses much less prevalent. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things they were saying to me was that they were growing so fast they just couldn't help themselves, which reminds me of 
you know, when my kid was seven, I couldn't believe my room was this dirty. I don't know yeah. how it happened like this. And, and <laughs> my house, come house, into my house. You know, my yeah. kids are eight. Well, it was interesting because I was like, what, you mean you didn't, like, you didn't care to put systems into place because you were, lots of companies grow fast. Google was growing really fast. Right. Uh, Apple so grew really fast. You know, yeah. I was like, that's, that's a stupid excuse. It is a stupid excuse. Uh, I agree. And that there was a lot of uh, disdain for HR. Very yeah, and I think that's another problem. I mean, HR has to serve three masters, and they have to serve all three if if it's gonna if it's gonna work. Got to keep the company out of legal trouble. Mm-hmm. Got to help the individual leaders at the company continue to grow and do mm-hmm. well. And you've got to address injustice mm-hmm. raised by individual employees. Right. And I think when the leaders at a company get too strong, when they have unchecked unilateral authority then that's all that HR does is keep the leaders out of trouble. And that's a disaster mm-hmm. um, waiting to happen. And then how do you do that when the leaders are the ones causing the problems? Well, you have to change the leaders, I guess. Yeah, but that, no, that doesn't happen in Silicon Valley. Like, it, often it happens we, uh, sometimes. I'm not so sure. It, when? When? Lead, when? I, I, let's talk in six months. I, I bet there's a leadership change. At, really? That's at an Uber, interesting but we'll thing. We'll see. Because we'll, you, we'll you hear from the people who are doing the investigation, no, no changes. You yeah, know of I mean, course you hear that. Yeah. Right. yeah. Do you, what would you do if you were advising him? Because he seems to be the problem. He, he, he's the one who's setting the tone, correct? I mean, the leader often sets the tone. The top leader does. Yeah. What would you say, Travis? You can't just say stop being an asshole. But what- no, you can't. Uh, you know, it is a it is a good question. My most of the coaching that I have done mm-hmm. has helped people who are most mistakes actually don't happen in this obnoxious aggression quadrant. Most mistakes happen in ruinous empathy, and and it's pretty easy to move someone over from ruinous empathy to radical candor mm-hmm. if somebody truly doesn't care. And I, I don't know Travis, so I'm not making yeah. a judgment here. But if somebody truly doesn't care about the people around them, I'm not sure I, I, I would. I'm not sure I'm such a CEO coach that I could fix that problem. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty sure I can fix the problem when somebody's sort of being too nice. Right. And the nice thing is, the good thing is that most, I would say, like on the order of 85% of, mis- of management mistakes get made over here in ruinous empathy. And if you can move the people who really do care over to challenge more, then you, then you undo the advantage that asshole-like behavior has in the world. it can world, be right? effective. It's more effective than ruinous sympathy or manipulative insincerity. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, you can think of a lot of cultures in tech, Microsoft. Yeah. Very tough. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. Tough. There's Amazon, a lot. tough. Very. Like Oracle, yeah. tough. Very yeah. successful. Yeah. Do you think that can continue going forward? those kind of cultures? No, because I think that, I, especially, and I think the part of the reason that there's so much interest in management in Silicon Valley, I mean, 15 years ago, somebody said to me, management is neither taught nor valued in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And I think that has changed. Right. And I think the reason it has changed is that the war for talent is so intense here mm-hmm. that nobody has to pay the asshole tax anymore. Mm-hmm. You just don't. And so companies can't afford to allow leaders to get away mm-hmm. with, with obnoxious behavior. I think, I think the advantage that the that obnoxious be- uh, obnoxious aggression has had in the past is is eroding as it's eroding at least here it, incredibly just when we have literally the most obnoxious political environment in all history right <laughs> I mean, it is very interesting how, yeah. that, how that has happened yeah it's uh, and I think part of what I mean I'll tell you a story about 
there was um, there was a there was a, a leader who I knew once, mm-hmm. and he he was often obnoxiously aggressive. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm going to try real hard not to label people, but All he right. was quite you know this person. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'll tell you who it is in a second. But go ahead. <laughs> please don't. Mm-hmm. Guess and, that I will. <laughs> And, I'm radically candid. Yes, you, yeah, you are. You are. You are that. And I love yeah. you for it. Mm-hmm. So there's a party. Mm-hmm. He throws a party, this guy. And, and the company's culture was sort of whimsical. And he says to everybody, come dressed in your national costume. And so everybody comes dressed in these goofy, crazy, ridiculous outfits. And he was new to the company and was unaware of what was going to happen when he said this, and he shows up in a tuxedo. I'm not sure what national mm-hmm. costume the tux is, but anyway, that's how he shows up. And he walks up to this guy, this friend of mine, and he says, I said come dressed in your national costume, not dressed like a fool. You know, he's just trying to make this guy look... And that was obnoxious, right? Mm-hmm. It was bad. Oh, yeah. It was bad behavior. Uh, but the worst thing about it I realized in retrospect was not his behavior, but that I not, I didn't stand up. I just like sat there yep. and said nothing, like yep. a bump on a log. And yep. that's why he got away with it for months and years and years. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that that is what has happened in in our with but our you, political discourse. Get away with that. We not we. they. I mean, yeah. not you, yeah. Kara. You don't let people right. get away with right. it. But I right. was uh, I was raised in the South. You right. know, I was raised to be a polite. Southern girl. Who it is didn't, interesting. Who didn't and I, I do disagree. think people don't say. Like, people what? don't. People don't speak up. I once had a boss. This guy you really don't know, but he was so belittling. He would do. You know. He, I remember one time, he. Uh, I was there was a B, he somehow I got BCC'd on a thread. He didn't realize I was there, and he oh, said I love those BCC. I hated those. those yeah, that was one of my favorite things about yeah. Google. Is Oops. like BCC was not allowed, and if you yeah. added somebody, you did it at the top, like plus so and so. Anyway. Uh, he said something incredibly rude about me, and I confronted him on it. And he was like, don't worry your pretty little head about it. So he was like what? that kind of belittling. Right. And I literally, I didn't even work for him for that long. It's about a year. But I literally shrunk half an inch. And I'm only five wow. feet tall. I don't have half an inch to, to give up. Yeah. My doctor was amazed. She's like, what is going on? And then when I quit, like I got the, I got the half an inch back in, yeah. in a matter of weeks. It was amazing. Wow. But anyway... So I, I, I couldn't stand this guy. I, I was consumed with hatred for this mm-hmm. guy. And then I bumped into him about a decade later and for whatever reason agreed to have a drink with him. Mm-hmm. And I realized that he wasn't that bad. Like the reason, the intensity of my emotion was not because of his behavior, but because of my own behavior, because I hadn't stood up to him. Huh. I hadn't He's stood up. He's still an asshole. Sorry. He <laughs> was. Look, what he said was obnoxious, but yeah. what I did was wimpy, and I don't right. care. I mean, what I care about Although, is myself, you know, it's, not so, him. At the same time, it's sort of like getting mugged. Like, it's not really your fault someone's hitting you on the head with a stick, right? No, no, but, you know, but like I you shouldn't... Because some people are shy. Some people yeah. cannot respond and shouldn't be forced to. By, yeah, I know. I'm not justifying his behavior. I'm just saying, like, a big part of the reason why, why obnoxious aggression has has an advantage is that mm-hmm. we don't stand up to it. Well, Too many of us are interesting because I, I, I'm going to just tell a very brief story. Someone in Silicon Valley was this woman CFO, um, and I'm I was not at a party. Guess who it was. There's lots of women CFOs actually, <laughs> so it's easy. It's, you can't guess who this is. Um, and the husband, who I never liked, uh, was um, also in Silicon Valley, and uh, was introduced was introducing her to someone, and he said, um, "Have you met my wife?" the chief fuck-up officer. Oh, my gosh. Right? 
I know. Wow. And, I, and so, you know, everyone's, Haha, and I go, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> and he's like, whoa, what's wrong? I said, that was super hostile. I don't know if you noticed that, but that was right. super hostile to your nice wife. <laughs> and he goes, oh, don't be like that. And he, was, he goes, yeah. oh, you lesbians, you have no sense of humor. I go, no, I laughed funny shit, but that isn't funny. That was super hostile. And I said, I said, don't talk to your wife like that in front of people. You've made us all feel awkward. And like, what is wrong with you? Yeah, like, why are more people like you, Kara? The wife was like, hey, Kara, don't, don't. You know, yeah. it's okay. I'm like, it's not okay. It's not okay. Yeah. It's not okay. You can't have your husband talk to you like that. You're like successful. And I turned to him. I said, if I had a hot, rich wife like yours, I would not speak to her that way. <laughs> I would like talk to her like, wow, she's fantastic. And it was fascinating that everyone didn't want me to say that. It was really, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and was, what was his reaction? He was like, oh, you know, I'm a sense of humor. I know you're, and I was like, you're just a jackass is what you are. And so we went back and forth and I said, what you said was rude and everyone thinks that, no one's saying it, but right. I'm like articulating the entire yeah. crowd's feelings on yeah. you right now. Yeah. And I wouldn't let him off. Like he, w- he kept trying to, and then, then he's he like, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm like, you're not sorry. Don't yeah. even bother. Like, yeah. so it went on like that. And he, it, it, later she divorced him. Thank uh-huh. God. And she came up and thanked me. She said, thank you for saying that because I, yeah. I got so, it was getting used to it. It's just, you could see it in the workplace. I was yeah. so used to it. It you just assumed normal. it was normal. Right, yeah. which was really interesting. I mean, the amazing thing about standing up to people is that often they, they actually appreciate it. I'll never forget when I started my career in Russia and uh, doing diamond diamond cutting mm-hmm. and I was oh, on a train I'm not even going down yeah, that road yeah okay. we won't go down that road right. that's another long story and so I'm on a train from Moscow to St. Petersburg and I at this time you could buy you know all four tickets because I didn't want to sleep with a strange man mm-hmm. it's an overnight train mm-hmm. and so I bought all four tickets so that I wouldn't have to sleep with a strange man and this strange man barges in and says you can't do that Devushka, mm-hmm. which means like Devushka. yeah little girl yeah. not just girl but little, little girl. girl yeah and and so and then he goes to the bathroom and so I take his bags and I throw them in the hall and I shut the door and, mm-hmm. and lock it and I'm and then in the, the next morning I know I'm going to have to confront the guy yeah. and I'm sort of panicked because mm-hmm. as I mentioned I was raised in the South I was like, right. not told never to do something like that mm-hmm. and I thought the guy was going to I thought something terrible I don't know what I thought was going to happen I thought something terrible was going to happen and instead he raced up to me and apologized I was like whoa mm-hmm. you know you mean you can stand up to somebody and the, right. they apologize to you for yes. their bad that this guy didn't apologize it sounds yes. like but sometimes it does happen yeah it does I was recently someone was asking me about mayoral stuff that I was thinking of and and he was like I want to give you money and I said every and he was one of those libertarians which I just can't stand <laughs> and and he's like he and I said oh, you want to give me money I don't, I'm not collecting money right. or anything like that and I said <laughs> I hate every single one of your political stances and I think you're an appalling selfish prick <laughs> And he's like, I still want to give you money. And I thought, oh, my God, wow. there's something wrong with that. Or not. Something... You no, know. It, was, it was odd. <laughs> and I stand by my assessment of that, of libertarians. So we're going to get some questions from the audience very quickly. Let's have some, please. Be open-minded. I'm going to call on the lady first right there. Hi. there. Hi. Um, you talked a lot about how taking feedback being men versus women. What if you are a woman working for a woman... And, you know, you want to be getting that candid feedback and sense that they're worried about hurting your feelings. And then vice versa, if you're giving feedback to another woman. Yeah, so I I think that if if you feel like your boss, no matter what your boss is... Um, baboon or man or woman or something else. If you feel like your if you feel like your boss is pulling their punches, you got to ask them for it, and you, you've got to just call them out on it. You got to say, "I 
the thing that you can do for me that would be more helpful than anything else is, is to tell me where, where I'm screwing up. So I, I would have four pieces of advice for soliciting feedback. The first is come up with a go-to question because it's awkward to ask for feedback. Nobody really wants to give you... People hate to give feedback. Nobody wants to give you feedback. Mm -hmm. And so when you ask somebody for feedback, the most common thing you'll hear is, oh, everything's fine, right? And you can't let that stand. So you've got to come up with a question that you feel comfortable asking and then asking again. So one that I used to like was, is there anything I could do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? I was talking recently to Krista Quarles, who said, that's a ridiculous question. I could never say that. I, what I always say to people is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. So whatever it is that works for you, like it doesn't matter what the question is. Just come up with a question right. that you're comfortable asking. So that's... Okay, go ahead. That's number to. one. Number two is you got to embrace the discomfort. This was, these were words of wisdom from Andy Grove. Yeah. Because you really want... You, you've got to drag the truth out of people. They do not want to tell you what they really think. So you've, you've got to make it more uncomfortable for them to say nothing than to say something. And then you've got to listen with the intent to understand, not to respond, right? You've, you, you can't get defensive. And then you have to reward the truth. If somebody tells you you stink, buy a stick of deodorant, use it, tell them you bought it, tell them you're using it, ask them if it's helping. Definitely right. on that one. Uh, right here and then my... Um, so, thanks for the book. I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Thank you. And, uh, and if, as, a, as an owner of a small bookstore, you would tell me to follow us in a management section. This is a management book. Yes. But as you're writing it, uh, how much of it you know, were you thinking, is like, oh, this is personal relationships management. This is parenting. It's, it is, it's about relationships, really. It, 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 I tried to write this book so that it would feel more like a book of short stories than your typical management book because management is all about relationships. And there's, there's a very specific kind of relationship between boss and employee. And it's a new relationship. I mean, for most of human history, the great collaborative feats were achieved through terrible brutality. And then along came the Industrial Revolution, and we replaced brutality with bureaucracy, which was a huge step in the right direction, but not really inspiring. None of us long to be bureaucrats. And so now we've, got, now we've got to replace bureaucracy with a real human relationship. But it's a new kind of relationship. So that's why I focused on it in, on management. But, but radical candor applies to child rearing. It applies to romance. It applies to marriage. Um, it applies to any, any human relationship, I yeah, think. Definitely. Uh, right here and then right here. I'm going to repeat the question, too. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you guys both for this. Uh, I think I'm reasonably empathetic. I think I deliver feedback okay. But maybe it's a question for both of you. I don't think I'm great at uh, identifying someone's flaws or what needs to be fixed. Really? I think you're good at it. No, I, come on. You know what's wrong. Uh, I don't always. I just think someone could be better or something. But I, sometimes it's a challenge to really get what it is. That's Meaning someone who's working for you. Yeah. You don't know why they suck? You don't? Really? Sometimes it's hard to identify. No, it's okay. It's... Yes, but so, I bet you do. So you want to repeat the question? Uh, how do you identify how people suck, really? How do you? 
It's hard. I'm, I feel your pain. And I think a, a big part of the reason why people often don't give feedback is because they can't diagnose exactly what the problem is, but they know there's a problem, but you don't really want to go to somebody and say, something's not quite right, but what's I'm not sure. What's your job? What do you, what do you, what's the business? I, a lot of people. I, I sell used cars, but I right. people. Yeah. So they don't sell cars would be sucking, right? <laughs> Right, but ultimately it boils down to not selling cars, right, or not? Yeah, sure, not selling cars at at the right price. At the right price, yeah. But you want to help them diagnose why they're not selling the cars at a good price, right? right? And and I think that just starting, just starting with what you do see as objectively as possible. What I see is that you know your prices are. 4% below the average or whatever. And then ask them why they think it might be. Say, I I see a problem. I'm here to help you fix the problem. I don't know. It's okay. You don't... the, the, The whole... Radical candor is a gift in two ways. It's either a gift because you're helping somebody fix a problem or because you're wrong and it's not a problem. And, and so you don't have to be right when you're giving feedback. You just have to say, here's what I see. What do you see? Don't you kind of have to be sort of right? Like, no. You, you don't need, no. Can no. you give bad feedback? Of course you can give yeah. bad mm-hmm. feedback. I mean, all the women who get feedback oh, yeah, that they're the too abrasive, they're getting abrasive. bullshit feedback. You're going to get bad feedback, and you're going to mm-hmm. give some bad feedback, and that's okay. The whole point is that we're all wrong all the time, and the reason why feedback is useful and feedback on feedback is useful is because it's really hard psychologically for any human being to see in the moment when they're making a mistake, when they're wrong. We rely on each other to, to spot those mistakes, and that's why it's so valuable. And so people you, always don't want to listen, right? Is that correct, to the feedback? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. More often than not, they're going to get defensive. Like, I didn't want to hear that I sounded stupid when I said, um, every third so word. doing this, the hand thing. Yeah, that's why I was like, just stop, that stop telling me this, right, <laughs> you yeah. know? But I can't see you doing that to Cheryl. I wouldn't do that once to her, I'll tell you. Well, you. you know, this, this was early on, and oh, Cheryl right. was an old friend yeah, from business school. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah now she'd just cut your arm off. Right? She, <laughs> she wouldn't cut my arm <laughs> off. The, yeah, she, she would, no, she she would give me some excellent advice. Yeah, no, I know that. This. <laughs> I just, um, so what about when feedback isn't welcome? I, I'm just, I had an employee who I was... I wanted to fire, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, Why didn't you just fire them? Well, I, you have to process. Yeah, okay. process. And so I was giving feedback that was largely negative about mm-hmm. spelling, about reporting, all kinds yeah. of stuff. And um, at the end, it was really negative. There was nothing positive. Po- like, this is wrong, right. this is wrong, this is wrong, this is something. But there were very clear examples of problems. And, um, and at the end, he was like, okay, thank you. That was really helpful. And I go, okay, good. And he goes, and, you know, I've been thinking about it. I've been here for a while. I think I deserve a raise. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? Huh? Yeah. And he goes, I think I deserve a raise. I go, what in the last 15 minutes that I've been saying to you? Um, I'm indicate- shocked this happened no, to you. It's wow. incredible. I it was like think, astonishing. I mean, it happened to me, but yeah. I. No, and I was like, what in the, what, what well, in the hell did you I've just been here. here. I've worked really hard. I said, you've worked really badly. Yeah. Uh, here, <laughs> I don't care if you worked hard, but you've done it badly. And so it was, it went on and, on and like, it went so long. I finally went, you know what? 
the last 15 minutes were about me preparing to fire you, and I'm actually just setting up the legal precedent to do so. So <laughs> just be clear, in three months you'll be fired. Like, it'll, it'll just, I'm like setting it up. And for did you. he quit? Or he... Ultimately, he quit, but okay. it was, it was the job. most astonishing moment. I was like, it oh. is, no, this is yeah. astonishing. This is Happens. truly astonishing yeah. how, so, so radical candor gets measured not at your mouth, mm -hmm. but at the other person's yeah. ear. Yeah, that's and a very so, good point. So Cheryl could see that, that yeah, she was listening. saying it, and I was blowing her. This guy so was she blowing had to go right to. Yeah, there was there was there was a guy who worked for me once, and he kept making a mistake. He kept kind of shooting himself in the foot mm -hmm. on a regular basis, and I really cared about this guy a lot. I liked him a lot, mm -hmm. and I and I remember I'll never forget it. It was one of the it was terrible moment. Mm -hmm. I went into this conversation with this guy and I thought if he's not crying by the end of this meeting I have not succeeded in getting wow. through to him and he was crying by the end of the by, but he got it and he fixed it and we're right. still so Bob's still working for you this is not no. Bob this was a different I feel bad for Bob this I like was Bob not, I know poor Bob but Bob um, is in a I happy like place Derek too um, next question right here giving um this might be a cultural difference, but what I've noticed is that having moved to the U.S. a year ago is that um, coming from Australia, everyone's pretty candid. And, mm -hmm. yes. um, and there's less of a sensitivity chip. Here I noticed um, the second I started working, people were like, wow, you're really negative. Mm -hmm. and, and my concerns <laughs> around attention. So like, yes. how, um, how do you continue to be, because my true self, my authentic self is to be honest, but how do you do that without... Um, being perceived as that way when you're not. So yeah. how do we make Australians not seem rude? Got it. You know, when I was That's just in Australia question. and they kept saying things, they go, I'm not being rude, but I'm like, no, you're being rude, but it's all right. Like, it was, they I, I prefaced it a lot with that. Yeah, like, I'm yeah. not trying to be rude. I'm like, yeah. kind of trying real hard to do that. But anyway. So, I mean, at, at its core, radical candor is about love and truth, right? Like, these are universal human things that's not... You know that, but but it gets perceived. It's it's interpersonally relative. So, like, if Cheryl were talking to somebody else on her team, sure. not me, right. she wouldn't have had to say you sound stupid. But she had to say that to get through to me. So it's again, it gets measured at the other person's ear, which is why it's so important to do it in person because you can most of communication is actually nonverbal. You can see how the person is reacting. And it's also culturally relative. So at one point, I was managing a team in Tel Aviv and a team in Tokyo. And believe me, radical candor sounds very different in Tel Aviv oh, than yeah. it does in Tokyo, Whoa. right? And, and with, the, with the team in Tokyo, I remember I, I, could, I had to call it polite persistence, right? Not radical candor. Like polite was how you showed you cared personally, and persis persistence was how you challenged directly. But in, in Tel Aviv, that, that kind of politeness would have been almost rude there. It would have been insulting. Mm -hmm. So you've got to make sure that you're picking up on the cues, the individual cues. There that, are, you know, country and regional differences. Yeah, I mean, when I moved... No, partly. <laughs> when I moved to California... I just said I don't care. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In Hebrew, but go ahead. Yeah, it's okay. All right. Uh, you don't have but to. But do you think about that regional differences? Like, of course, they are more forthright in Australia. I mean, you sort of forthright versus so, so in yes. a certain Asian So when countries, you when you come to California, you've you've got to work a little harder on figuring out how to show that you care. When, or move and, to New York. Or, or move fine. to New York. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. When I moved to from New York to California, somebody sent me 
a map of the United States, and the guy in New York was saying, fuck you, and thinking, have a nice day, and the guy in California was saying, have a nice day, and thinking, fuck you, and yeah. I was like, ah, oh, that explains so much about yeah. my first three months in California. Yeah, but not everybody in every place is like that, right? No, no, uh, look... Honestly, the individual differences, I think, are actually much bigger than the cultural differences. And so even if you're in Tel Aviv, you may be managing a very sensitive Israeli, and you've got you've to make sure Whom you we have yet to meet. Okay. <laughs> I've met a few. <laughs> I really haven't. <laughs> Kim, you, you, you said that Google was a fast-moving consensus-driven company, and generally speaking, we think of dictatorship is fast-moving. Yeah. 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 You said you didn't think that it was possible, but Google made it happen. How did they make it happen? What, what, what did make that possible? So the question was, how what makes could... it possible for Google to create a fast-moving consensus-based culture when it's for another company to do it? So I think that the key at Google was that there was this very strong bias to yes. So you did not have to go around asking for permission to do things. You just could start doing them and announce that you were doing them. And then the onus was on the naysayers to stop you. And this was really, I think this was pretty conscious. There was at one point, Marissa uh, Mayer, when she was still there, said the goalies have gotten too good. Like it was too easy to block things and too hard to make things happen. And, and, And this was still pretty early in Google's. This was pre-IPO. And, and so they started making changes and allowing people to just... Engineers could do X percent experiments. They could just do them. They didn't have to ask for permission. And, and I think also, Eric, one of the things I liked a lot about Eric was he, he really encouraged people to be loud. He, there was, there was, there was, a, there was a, a very strong speak-truth-to-power culture there that really helped people just move forward. And there was a, a lot of celebration of mistakes. It was really, it was, a, it was the safest place to make a big mistake I've ever seen. But that seen. does change because, you know, now there's a lot more, less of that there, a lot more of the, less, the whimsy at that company. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it, must, it, it has changed since it's gotten bigger, but it's, I would say Google's done a pretty good job sort of, fighting off the gravitational pull of organizational you, mediocrity. I, I would disagree with you. I would say they have that. I think one of the problems is wealth, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. When people get wealthy, they think they're the smartest people on the planet. Like yeah. People I used to know before they were wealthy now are 100% right, and it's much harder yeah. to... Yeah, in general, we have a wealth and intelligence obsession problem in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. It's not yeah. unique to Google, I but think. It, it does work. It, I yeah. think what happens when you get licked up and down all day is that you feel like you're really <laughs> smart, right? You know? But I don't think you... I do think there's still a pretty strong culture of debate and disagreement. And, and so there's not that many... There, there's not that... I mean, there are some people, I guess, getting, as you say, yeah. licked up and down all day long. Yeah. But there's plenty all of people of who, <laughs> who open themselves up to... Yeah. Uh, hey, my husband works there. Yeah, He's, I had a, an encounter today with someone very well-known and very famous on email. We had a back-and-forth on Twitter... And then he wrote me really a rude email, like, mm-hmm. like, you know, le- learn what you learn more before you tweet something, like something, but like in an asshole. Way. Yeah, it was a really asshole note. And I wrote back, I go, you know, I, I wrote back, I know you can boss around your fucking minions, but I'm not one of them, so uh-huh. don't speak to me like that again. I was not saying like I can say whatever I yeah. want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know who you think you are anymore, but it was. 
and I'd known him when he was super, like, a nothing, and it yeah. was really interesting. And he wrote back, he goes, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And it was really interesting. <laughs> See, it works sometimes. Yeah, but it did, they but it was interesting down. that he thought he could behave. Like, like I was yeah. like, what happens to you all day that you get yeah. to talk to people? A little, like look, uh, uh, absolute power is a terrible thing, yeah, but a little like, power is a nasty thing. It has to be very powerful. Yeah. But it was interesting. I was well, sort of like, wow. And it just took one second to, like, yeah. get them to, back to normal. Yeah. But they de I think definitely wealth and... Yeah. Influence does. Yeah, no, it, it's, some people it like screws people make up. Make a Mark Zuckerberg actually has handled it really well. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, I find him to be similar to when he was yeah. started. Okay, one more question. Is there a reason why why we're holding Google up as some sort of gold standard? Yeah, I agree. One sort of second, I can think of five really awful things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Shh. Don't. You can look it up on Recode. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why don't people say what happens? This is an executive who who was at Uber, being head yes. of engineering, and de declined to tell Uber that he had been under a sexual harassment investigation. He forgot in the middle of a sexual harassment scandal. Um, so. Right. Yes, Google let him go without yeah, saying why, there was, why, there was a more complicated reason for that. Yes, everybody kept quiet. It was really interesting. Except not everybody, because you found out, I found out, right? So, I mean, a lot of people knew. If, a if, lot of people knew, and then a lot of people were angry that someone got to leave without yeah. it being said. And so... It, it, it was sort of covering it up, like, let's let them go quietly. Like, yeah. th But the fact of the matter is, they did have to go, so that was a good thing. But at the same time, they got to go quietly, so a lot of people... Right, so it was interesting, like, the, that didn't why... didn't go quickly enough. And, and one of and the interesting quietly. parts was Uber, when I called to tell them about mm -hmm. the problem, or mm -hmm. the issue, uh, they didn't know. They didn't know, and I said, well... Why didn't you know? Like, didn't you do any checking? And yeah. they were like, well, we didn't know. They didn't tell us. We didn't know. And I said, well, why do I know? And they're like, well, you know everything. And I'm like, no, you have like dozens yeah. of people Yeah, you're working. one person. Right. I was like, you have dozens of recruiters out. and everything else. Like, and it wasn't difficult to find out either. It wasn't tremendously difficult to find it's out. It's awkward to ask. And you're not afraid. Well, it was afraid. interesting. So talk about that. Why, why do people, and especially around issues of sexual harassment yeah. or difficult behavior or, um, you know, bad job performance, they... They pretend like everything's great. You know, it's the old I'm leaving for personal reasons to yeah. spend more time with yeah. my family yeah. and Gosh, that kind of stuff. Gosh, poor family. <laughs> I know. Like, you know, it, it, and it's interesting because another guy who just left Uber gave me a statement that was just like, I fucking hate him. I just hate him. Yeah. <laughs> They're just awful. Yeah. You know, he didn't think my values are different than their values. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, you're not an asshole, so let's assume yeah. they are. So yeah. it was like, it was really, people were like, I can't believe he said that. I said, well... That's how he felt. Yeah. Like, yeah. But it was like interesting to see that. That was. Candor. It is. It is. You know. It is. Why do people do that? To be nice, or to just legally, or what? Well, so there's a bunch of reasons why people don't ask and why mm -hmm. people don't tell. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's always easiest for me to tell stories about myself because then I'm sure I know the facts, mm -hmm. relatively sure. Not totally. Maybe right. you'll, maybe you'll challenge me for on sure. this. But but I you know I think I think about stuff that has happened to me uh, in, in various jobs that I've had 
and and why I didn't come like you know some so and so grabs my ass or Mm -hmm. you know which happened Um, or or a boss I had very early in my career who who like really it was awful stuff. And so why didn't I tell, why don't I tell that, like, I could, like, I can list, actually, a bunch of stuff that happened pretty much in every job. I had another boss who, who um, pulls me into his office and he's like, have you heard of the competence, likability literature? And actually hadn't at this point. Cheryl hadn't written Lean In. And, and he points out that, it, and it's Valentine's Day. You can't make this up. He points out that my, my colleagues don't like me because I'm too competent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then he explains the competence. And so he explains the bias. And I'm thinking, oh, this explains a lot <laughs> that's happened in my... He's going to do something about it. I'm like feeling more and more grateful to this man as he's explaining this to me. And then he ends by saying, so could you be more likable, please? And I'm like, fuck you. You know, it's not my most <laughs> likable moment. And, and I was lucky at that point because I had other options and so I, you know, threw my helmet at the, at the window and quit. Um, but, but why didn't I, and there's more to this story. He also was upset that my jeans weren't tight enough and bought me really tight jeans, like you can't make it up. And like a shirt that showed my bra if I moved the wrong way. So, and, and then, uh, anyway, there's more to the story. So why... Let's, let's why, underline, almost every woman in Silicon Valley, you're right, starts had stories like this. Not just in Silicon no, Valley. No, all over it's, the place, but not, I'm just saying here I don't think it's worse here. No, than, no, but what I'm saying is. is, what's interesting about the Uber thing is every woman I know has a story, and so many lovely men were like, I don't, I can't believe that. They couldn't that. believe it, yeah. Can't believe it. I'm like, yeah. ask a woman. Like, turn woman. to, turn yeah. left and ask, and it's a really interesting Yeah, thing. so I think there's, I think that there's... A so co- why didn't you pay so the price? So why didn't I pay the price? So... Maybe I should have. I, I yes, almost you certainly should. You it's not too late. Should've. I still can tell the stories. So, so part of the problem for me was that one. I didn't. I didn't want this. These incidents to define me. And early in my career, I think it was more justifiable. I think late. The the later. The the, the less I have to risk, the less justifiable justifiable it is not to come forward about this stuff. So I think, you know, you don't want these things to define you. You also, the things can, can become so time-consuming. Uh, and I just... And I'm, if you don't stop them, they keep going. Yeah, they keep going. And now, you know, my daughter's going to suffer for them if I don't, yeah. you know. And my son, too, frankly. Like, mm-hmm. he's one of those good guys. I'm sure we will never do this stuff. So I think that's part of the problem. But I also think that the stories are often more nuanced, like this guy with the competence likability thing, I would even, despite as furious I was at him at the moment, like if I look back, like overall, he did more good than harm to me in my career. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like it, it wasn't, it was not, it was not 100% a bad situation. It was like maybe 60% bad. Yeah, but that's a massive compromise you made. Yeah, it was a massive compromise, and I. Um, so you're right about that. I'm not saying that yeah. I did the right thing, but I think that's part of the reason. Like, like I didn't really. Did I really? Did I really want to ruin his career over this? Maybe I should have wanted to, but I didn't really want to ruin his career. That's why it um, happens. Over yeah, and, over. and yeah, I did talk to him. Mm-hmm. I did talk to because I did sort of feel like I owed it to the women that were staying mm-hmm. at this, and I was super clear. Mm-hmm. I was radically candid in that private conversation with him, 
And, and I think he did, you know, I don't think I'd change his personality, but I think he got it a little bit. Um, so I think that's part, I think that's part of the problem is like, if, if I could have had, if I could have had a conversation with him that wasn't going to get legal, that wasn't going to blow up in some massively public way, but that could have changed the situation. I mean, that was kind of what I was shooting for, um, in, in the, in the parting of ways conversation. Um, so I think that's I think that's another that's the issue. Another See, I part feel like it. someone has to pay somewhere because that's the only way. It's when there's a cost on both sides. Yeah. Like Susan Fowler is going to pay because she. Yeah, I mean, she's, I've been talking, she's she's been getting a lot yeah. of horrible emails. A lot of you know yeah. what I mean. Like yeah, she's, the victim but, pays more than the she was willing to pay the price. Yeah. And she's yeah, she's good that, for her. Good, very good for her. It, it has really made me. Do some soul searching. Yeah, which is interesting, that, yeah. and 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 the same way is someone who behaves inappropriately or in some manner that doesn't work as a management, any kind of management behavior should yeah. pay the price. Yeah, yeah, should that too. should definitely pay the price. I think there's another thing where there are a few really bad actors, mm-hmm. like and one guy who who does this stuff to fifty women, mm-hmm. you know, and and then and then the other the other men just can't even imagine that this stuff is happening yeah. to right. the women. That Like, it's inconceivable right. to so them. So I'm going to end, because we've got to end. Okay, uh, we've got to end. That's very sad, very fun. Give, uh, two very, three very short tips to people, what they can do right now to change. It's super short. Super short. First thing that you can do is when you go in to give somebody feedback, make sure that you go in humbly, that you're open to being wrong. When you go in to solicit feedback, ask your question, shut your mouth, count to six in your head. I just made it to two. Six is a really long time. Almost nobody can endure that much silence. They will tell you something. And third, to encourage feedback between people. When somebody comes to you bitching about somebody else, griping about somebody else, don't listen to it. Say, did you go talk to that person? You feel like you're being empathetic to listen. You're not. You're stirring the political pot. Push people to go talk to each other directly. So those are my three parting pieces of advice. Fantastic. Kim Scott, Radical Candor. All right. Thank you. I want to thank Kim Malone Scott again for joining me on the podcast and to the team at Optimizely for hosting us at their offices. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Code Advisors partner Quincy Smith, the Upstarts author Brad Stone, and Time Well Spent founder Tristan Harris, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. And thanks to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.